0: Hi, I'm David Stoker, and I want to welcome you to the Better Life and Recovery hashtag Hope Dealer Movement podcast. As a visible and vocal member of the recovery community since 2009, I'm frequently asked questions and for advice from people all the time. Some are curious, some are still using, some are in recovery, and some people just care about somebody who's currently struggling with a hurt habit or hangout. If people in my community have those questions, I guarantee that people everywhere are looking for answers as well. We started this podcast to give you answers and support, because not only is recovery real, it is amazing. Hope you enjoy the show. This week we're doing 10 questions with someone in recovery, which means I'm going to ask 10 questions of somebody in recovery. And tonight, today, I guess this week, we have Tim Cavanaugh joining us. Tim, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Uh, thanks Dave for bringing me on uh, I am a person in long-term recovery and I have been sober since March 12 2012 uh, same you know same thing as you know drugs or alcohol uh, yeah I just you know life's good since I've been in recovery uh, what else do you want to know I
0: don't know uh, maybe you will stop there and we'll just jump right into the questions and you can kind of answer some of that as you go uh, so, uh, Tim, why did you start using to begin with?
1: That is the million-dollar question. Uh, honestly, I I don't ever have I don't have an answer for that. You know, I just know that one time a friend, the first time I willingly used, you know, when I was like four, I accidentally ate some meth. <laughs>
0: Woo! That's an accident,
1: <laughs> right? Uh, and then when I was five, I remember drinking a lot. My parents would have keg parties. Um, but when I was 13, a friend just offered me some weed and I smoked it and I loved it and I wanted to smoke every day. And I don't remember ever thinking I want to repress some kind of childhood trauma. I just, however, I normally felt, I preferred to feel high. You know, and I had a coworker that I worked with. And she's like, I asked her if she'd ever used before because we both worked in recovery. And she said, yeah, I smoked weed one time and I felt like I was in a whole nother dimension and I never wanted to feel like that ever again. And I said, that's crazy because I felt like I was in a whole nother dimension too and I never wanted to not feel like that again, (laughs) you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it definitely has a different impact on people. So so just a little segue. It it sounds like there might have been a genetic Factor there, too, if your parents had keg parties at their house quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, what made you decide to stop? I mean, here you've tried this thing, and it puts you on this other level that you really love feeling. So, what was that thing?
1: The, the moment that made me want to change, um, honestly... You know, I really believe that addiction is a progressive thing. It didn't stop with weed. Eventually it was ecstasy, cocaine, crack, meth, pain pills, and at the end I was shooting heroin. And my life was a steady decline as I went along. And as soon as I started injecting heroin, it was like a nose dive straight for the bottom. And uh, at the very end, It's, you know, the thing that I'm using, I can't even, it doesn't even get me high anymore. I have to use just a function and I'm destroying my health. I didn't even have any veins left, you know, at the very end for me, which is, I mean, yeah. So I I lost, I didn't have a job. I didn't have any family relationships. I didn't have any friends. It was just me sitting there by myself, uh, trying not to go crazy every day. And I, I called Bridgeway. I was like, listen, I need to come in there. I'm losing my mind. I was like, I knew there was a waiting list. I said, please, I will bring my own lunch. I will go home and sleep in my own bed. I just need something to occupy my mind all day so I don't go crazy. And they said, "Uh, sorry, keep calling and checking in. We'll eventually get you a bed. I said, don't even put me on your list. I'll be dead before I ever get in that place. And uh, four months later, I was at my you know my wits end and i man it's crazy i sat i i laid down and i started to pray and i said the most sincere prayer i ever said in my life i said god please help me i can't live like this another day and i prayed that over and over and over till i fell asleep and i woke up the next morning to bridgeway calling me and i thought maybe i had left something there the last time i went to bridgeway and they said uh is this Tim Cavanaugh? I said, yes. And they said, are you still interested in coming to treatment here? And I said, absolutely. And I said, okay, can you be here Monday? And I said, absolutely. And I got off the phone and I thought, when the hell did I call Bridgeway? <laughs> I couldn't even remember calling it. That I called them four months before. I was like, I told that lady to not even add me to the list. You know, And I, I went in and, man, I still, I didn't want to work a program of recovery necessarily, but, I was at least willing to follow the suggestions of what I was learning in treatment. So
0: Well, that's awesome, man. It's, you mentioned something about that, that progression. You know, I think back in the day we used to call it the Ginny crank plan. you know, give us a gram. We'll take off the weight. But I mean, you lose the weight, the hair, the teeth, the yeah. job, the family. I mean, it, it just kind of kind of rolls up and takes away everything as you go. I, I like how it starts off generally nice, sweet. I always think of it like an abusive relationship, yeah, you know, if a uh, first date somebody punched somebody in the nose, it wouldn't continue, but right. it starts off great and then over time mm-hmm. slowly progresses. so so now you're in recovery, uh, right? You go to Bridgeway, that stuff happens. What does recovery mean to you though?
1: Oh man it's it's evolved for me. like at first, it just meant going to 12step meetings. You know, and uh, having a sponsor and working the 12-step program. Um, Because that was the only face of recovery that I had encountered. Now, now, through working in recovery and being around for a while, you know, recovery to me is just the the process of putting the pieces back together. You know, and that can look a lot of different ways at a lot of different levels. So I know that's not like a dictionary definition, but when I think of people people taking active steps to undo the damage i'm like that's recovery and i'm not gonna i'm not gonna tell someone what isn't you know that process for them
0: yeah that's fun no you're not really in recovery (laughs) i hear people do that though it's weird you know how about you have you ever heard somebody tell somebody well you don't do it my way so i think we talked about that a little bit before the podcast really yeah it's
1: you know, and what we talked about was, uh, a dogma to a certain, um, to a certain, you know, what your, what your program looks like. And, uh, and I get it, you know, but at the same time, it's like, there's so, I've met so many people who have long-term recovery that have done different ways that I'm like, I don't know, who am I to say? If you want to know what I did, I can show you that right. path. Uh, I can show you other people who know other paths, you know, um, but I'm not going to act like there's only one path.
0: Absolutely. I always tell people, I'm like, if everybody's recovery looked like mine, this would be a really boring world. Mm -hmm. You know, fortunately we all look different. I mean, I guess if everybody was the same, maybe we wouldn't have addiction or maybe everybody would be an addict. I don't know. Woo! if everybody had a substance use disorder, that could be really scary. So I'm glad that we're all different we're wired differently. So. You talked a little bit about it, uh, about kind of that, uh, I think in some of the programs, they talk about that moment where you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. But what were some of those things that that got you into recovery to begin with?
1: Like some of those moments that were just like, I'm so sick of this? Yeah. Oh, man. There's a couple that I I think about and I'm like, this is just crazy, you know? Um, Like, I noticed okay one big one new year's eve 2011 going into 2012 i spent all day driving around in my grandma's car with my friend who was a crackhead he was my only friend at that time and we never even spoke to each other except to say go left here go right there that was the extent of our (laughs) conversation it's good friendship yeah it was great right and uh we spend all day driving around while he's stealing stuff and I'm returning it, you know, a common thing that I found out is very common. Uh, and we go back to my house and I'm doing my drugs. He's doing his, and I'm watching the ball drop on TV and everyone's so happy and they're hugging and kissing. And I'm just, I've never felt more alone in my life, even hanging out with someone else. And I'm just like, this has to end. You know, and the next day he, uh, my crackhead friend left and said, uh, man, I can't hang out with you anymore. You're too messed up. (laughs) And I'm like me, you're the one that's too messed up. And I was willing to tolerate your company, you know? Right. And like, but my entire day just existed to do whatever I could to stay out of my head, which I have healthy ways of doing that today, but at that time. You know, I would try to binge-watch as much TV as possible. I would try to sleep as many hours as I possibly could. And in between, try to be as high as I possibly could. And, like, one show I would binge-watch was the show Locked Up. Uh, It's like Life in Prison. And I would watch that show, and I just remember this, like, burning jealousy watching the show. Like, man, if I was locked up with these guys... That would probably be the only way I could stop using. And I would have friends and, like, a little prison gang. You know, right. I'd have food all the time. You know, they're they're in there playing sports and weightlifting and basketball. It's it's crazy that you can be in a self-imposed prison so bad that you're watching people in prison feeling jealous of them, you know. So, like, those little things happening, I'm like, uh, I don't – I didn't have – I had a lot of warrants out for my arrest, but the legal stuff wasn't what made me want to stop. It was all the emotional stuff, just hitting a, a devastating emotional bottom where there wasn't even anyone around me to point the finger at. It's like, I'm behind the wheel. There's no one else to blame. This is, this is me who's running the right. show, and this is where it, it's been going for years. You know, It was kind of like a moment of, I'm doing this. No one else is doing this to me. I'm doing this. And I finally took ownership of what was happening, and that's when I said that prayer, like, I need help, you know.
0: Absolutely. You, you mentioned a bottom, and we're going to stray away from the 10 questions for this, but that's something I hear people say all the time. Well, well, they just haven't hit their rock bottom. Do you really think everybody needs to hit their rock bottom before they get sober, before they find that recovery?
1: No. No, they don't. I, there's a, and there's a saying that I love from Mark Twain that goes with this. Uh, smart people learn from their mistakes wise people learn from the mistakes of others some people can see uh, a more a worse bottom coming and but sometimes you're in a state of delusion to think that you haven't hit bottom just right. because it can get worse and so what I was telling you about my bottom I remember talking to a friend and saying you know, I don't think I hit bottom yet and he said, what do you mean? You know, he's right. looking at my life like, are you kidding me? He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I still have this laptop. The laptop. <laughs> <laughs> my laptop was the reason that in my mind that it, I hadn't hit bottom right. yet.
0: I haven't pawned that yet, yeah. so I'm
1: still doing good. And But, like, that's the crazy thing. I had pawned it. My grandma kept helping me get it out of the pawn shop. <laughs> right. But, like, I still have this laptop. It hasn't. I haven't totally hit bottom, and he's like, and he said it to me, and it's something that I know is true today. He's like, man, your bottom is wherever you're done digging. Right. When you're done digging, that's as low as it has to go. And I was like, wow, I don't want it to get any worse. And all I had to do was use my imagination to see how much worse it can get. And, and that's the other thing about, oh, he hasn't hit rock bottom. There's, it's like a – it's an imaginary thing because however bad it is, It can get worse. Like every bottom has a trap door. And under that trap door, there's a crawl space with a hatch. You know, it's like you can always find, if you don't die, it can always get worse. So, like, what is a rock bottom anyway? If if, if it can always continue to get worse.
0: Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I can remember. I used to cook, I used to be a dope cook back in the day. And I would surround myself with people worse than me. And when somebody would be like, man, you're a junkie. I'd be like, no, that guy's sleeping on my couch that doesn't have a place to go. That's a junkie. I mean, I pay rent. I'm still doing good. Mm -hmm. It's weird. I I think, uh, man, we're brilliant. People with substance use disorders are brilliant. And we can always justify and rationalize anything and everything we do. Mm -hmm. Right. I think of uh, somebody that starts off drinking alcohol and they're like, well, at least it's legal. Right, And then they start smoking weed. And they're like, well, you know, I mean, God gave this to us. It comes from the ground. <laughs> right. And then maybe they, uh, they start, uh, oh, we'll go meth. And then say they start uh, using meth. And they're sitting there doing lines. And they're like, well, at least I'm not sm- smoking it off foil like those knuckleheads. And then they start smoking it on foil. And they're like, well, at least I'm not shooting it up. And then they start shooting it up. And they're like, well, you know, this is actually a cleaner way to do it. At least I'm not doing heroin. <laughs> And then they flip to heroin, and they're like, well, at least I'm not doing jinkum. (laughs) So, and if you don't know what jinkum is, look it up. I don't want to talk about it. It, It's gross, and it disgusts me. (laughs) So, I'll just send that out to any listeners. Look up jinkum. It is, Uh, we'll talk about it. You know what it is? No. (laughs) Basically, people have found out that if they uh, bag up feces, um, that it lets off gas that they can huff and get a head change from. Yeah. So, literally, it's, yeah, it's. Yeah, from what I hear, it's a really crappy way to get high. <laughs> anyway, uh. dad jokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dad jokes. They're horrible jokes. But yeah, I think I once heard somebody say about rock bottom, they're like, you know, my people live on the bottom. If they hit rock, for them, rock bottom's death. You know, so, so I think that sometimes thinking that rock bottom has to happen, and, and I agree with you, it is a bottom, but everybody's bottom is different, and we can't look at somebody. Because I can always find somebody worse than me and go, well, you know, I guess I haven't hit bottom yet because that person right there, look at what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So I think it can actually be really dangerous to think that everybody has to hit this bottom because you're right, it's, it's an imaginary line. It's made up and that line's going to change for everybody. Right. So I had a friend and he got pulled over and he didn't even go to jail. He got booked in, like he got booked and released and uh, he never used again. And I remember talking to him after, and he's like, man, I was so scared they were going to put me in population. He's like, man, I'm never going back again. I'm done. I'm never going to use again. And he hasn't used. I mean, that was back in the 90s, and that kid has never used since. It, it, it amazes me. Other people, you know, I mean, I'd go to county jail with enough money in, in my pocket to bond out, and I'd stay in there for a week to catch up on sleep and gain some weight back. You know, to me, it was less stressful in jail because I didn't have to worry about getting mugged. I didn't have to worry about getting busted. So I think everybody's got a different level. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that it can be really dangerous, especially because that's a message I think a lot of parents get. Oh, where well, your kids haven't hit bottom yet. Or a treatment place. It's like, well, you know, I guess they just don't want it yet. Uh, how often with the disease do we blame the person with the disease mm-hmm. other than addiction? I mean, really, if somebody's been to your treatment program three times and they haven't found recovery yet, maybe you need to start looking at what you're doing at your treatment facility. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Instead of, what are they, victim blaming? Instead of sitting there going, well, you know, I mean, I guess they just don't want it, okay. What did we do that made it not attractive to them? Because I think that even though people do have to want it and have to want to work at it, I mean, don't you think that there's also people that, that think they're doing a great job that are doing a huge disservice? I mean, I've had a really good therapist, a really bad therapist. How about you? Oh, yeah. You know, so I don't know. That's just me running my mouth, I guess. But No, I know what you mean. I
1: If I have a client that I put in treatment and they fail there, I, I'm a firm believer in sending them somewhere else the second time. You know, why would I send them to the same place? Like, clearly, and even if it, if it was your fault, you got what that place has to offer. Let's go somewhere else and maybe we'll turn up something
0: new that you hadn't seen the last time. Like change the approach. Absolutely. I know there's treatment places I won't even send people to because of the experiences from people that have gone there. And there's other ones that are probably closer to the top of my list because I know I know the therapists they have. I know that they're using evidence-based practices. I know that everything they're doing is, is steeped in science and wisdom. And I think that's a deadly combination. You know, I always say, uh, I think somebody in recovery uh, that's been trained as a therapist is kind of like a ninja Mm -hmm. because they have both sides of it. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm.
1: I know exactly what you want.
0: So I think it's helpful, but I also think that we need both sides out there. You talked about it earlier, and so did I. Uh, Some people are like, well, you know, they've never used, so I don't think that they're going to do me any good. You know, uh, what were you saying about that before the podcast started? Yeah, so you know, when I was a counselor at Bridgeway,
1: they would say, "Tim, I don't want this person as my counselor. I want you to be my counselor because you're in recovery." And I'm like, "That guy's been alive for 50 years and has been living by all the right morals and principles. That would be the guy you'd want to learn from, you know? If you just want to talk to someone who's been through it, like go to meetings, go go where there's people in recovery. But this is someone that uh, has proven they can demonstrate how to live clean." live a healthy life you know
0: yeah so i think that's a great thing to think of for those people that are struggling maybe with working with somebody that that doesn't have a substance use disorder isn't in recovery is the fact that man they to steal one of those expressions they've lived life on life's terms their entire lives Mm -hmm. now don't get me wrong they might have their own jacked up problems i think everybody does you know in celebrate recovery they talk about hurts habits and hang-ups because everybody's got something that's kicking their butt you know, that's kind of consuming their life, whether it's shopping or gambling or pornography or maybe they're a type A personality and they put in 100 hours at work. But, I mean, a lot of those people, they function really well in society. They're not going to jail. They're not going out and stealing from people. So, by all means, listen to what they have to say.
1: Right. And, you know, that's there's a big difference between peer-supported recovery and then actual evidence-based clinical interventions, and someone who just has uh, the education, they are trained in how to do things like cognitive behavioral therapy and, uh, you know, motivational interviewing and things like that. And it's like, yeah, let's, they're applying a skill set that's going to help you get over the hump. Like, yeah, they're, hi, yeah, I'm Tim, I've, I'm in recovery, I've been through what you've been through. Cool, that'll only take you so far, it'll be a shot of hope for you, but... And I do have some clinical tools, too, but the other person who doesn't have that right. experience and has a more sharpened skill set has a lot to offer, too.
0: Yeah, to me, I always say uh, peer service, peer supports are like physical therapy and treatments like surgery. So if you need surgery, by all means, go to a surgeon. Don't go to a physical therapist, right? right? But some people don't need surgery. Some people just need to go see a physical therapist. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people that will go through surgery, and then need to see a physical therapist, and I think that's where we kind of kick in as peer supports, Mm -hmm. is they go through surgery, and then we teach them how to apply everything that they learned in treatment to their daily life, so that they can maintain their recovery. That's good,
1: and that's honestly what I think about all the time, when families will say, uh, or friends of families will say, I don't think he's hit bottom, and I'm like, listen, if you break your leg, it doesn't matter if you wanna do physical therapy afterward or not, you have to go get that treated. And if that person's willing to show up to get that repaired, they qualify to be there. Right. You know Whether or not they're gonna to go to physical therapy afterwards, r- irrelevant. Let's go treat this problem right now if they're willing to go. Now, if they if they're refusing to show up, there's nothing you can do. But to not even offer it, I feel like you're doing a disservice
0: absolutely and to show up i mean that success i i did treatment court for years as a therapist and i remember having a client sitting in front of me and they're like well i don't want to be here and i'm like really so who made you come here you know well they told me i had to be in drug court and i'm like no they didn't they gave you a couple really crappy choices they said hey you can go to treatment court or you can go to prison and you picked the least crappy of the crappy choices so this was a choice mm-hmm. And then you chose to come in today and see me. That was a choice, too. You didn't have to. You could have ran. Mm -hmm. You could have slept. But you're here. So why are you here? You know, what do you want? Because that's what I think is a really important thing. Instead of saying, you know what, you need to get sober, what do you want to focus on? Because it's amazing. They're like, well, you want me to get off drugs? No, I want you to accomplish whatever you want to accomplish. Why did you come here? Because I don't want to go to prison. Okay, then what do we need to do to make sure you don't go to prison?
1: Yeah, I... That was very hard. My very first job in recovery was a peer support specialist. And I'm sure that me being a 12-step guy, you can imagine the only thing I was really saying at first. And my uh, supervisor would do chart reviews every week, you know. And there was this one client that every single time I would say, go to meetings. I'm not going to meetings. The next week, did you go to meetings? No, I didn't go to meetings. (laughs) (laughs) Week after week. And she said... uh, Tim, he's not going to meetings. Like, you need to change what you're doing. You need to say, like, he's willing, he respects you enough where he continues to show up every week. Tell him something else. Like, find some goal. Ask him what he wants to do. And, like, I swear, this guy did not want to set any goals, but he finally decided the only goal in life after pressing him for, you know, a couple weeks was that he wanted to move to Colorado to trim weed. I was like, all right, how do we get you to Colorado to accomplish the only goal you want in your life? And who am I to judge if that is going to work for him or fail? And it it sounded so counterintuitive, but it's like I'm not – I just need to help you do something with your life, set some kind of goal, work towards something – Try to figure out why that's your only goal in life, too, you know, but at some point you got to change the approach, you know. Not everyone's willing to go to do that.
0: And that's why I think peer supports are really important, you know. I mean, we've gotten way off track, but that's what I do. Uh, but imagine, uh, you know, if when I was a therapist, yeah, I wanted them to do – I wanted to find their goals, but I still had things I had to do, right? I had to do a relapse prevention plan, a continuing care plan. They had to do an autobiography. We always worked the first three steps with them because, you know, that's a clinical tool. I mean, literally, if one of your best clinical tools is something they can get for free um, from somebody with lived experience, then you probably aren't a really good clinician, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, but I mean, those were the things we would do. And if I'm a sponsor, you need to go to meetings, you need to work steps. As a peer, what do you want to do? There's no agenda mm-hmm. there. Because, I mean, if you're somebody's therapist, there's things you absolutely have to do mm-hmm. so that, to check off billing codes, mm-hmm. right? For, in, say, insurance has certain codes. Treatment court has certain codes. If you're a sponsor, definitely things. If you're a pastor, there's definitely things you want somebody to do. When you're a peer, what do you want to do? You know, that's awesome. Not many sponsors, I, I, not many therapists either are going to be like, oh, you want to trim weed in Colorado? How can we help you do that? Yeah they're gonna say no that's a drug we don't do drugs so yeah. i think that's awesome that approach
1: yeah it really is and and i i was blessed to be where i was and learn a lot of things that i learned about you know goal setting and creating smart goals and identifying where people are in their stages of change like this is a person that doesn't even they're not even aware they have a problem right where do you go from there like you you know, a, a, most of the time when someone walks into a 12-step meeting and they ask for a sponsor and they say, tell me what to do, they're in a whole different stage of change. They're, like, they're, they're ready to just be given instructions and go. There's some people that are like, I don't even know why I would need to change anything. And then the, the whole goal is just to get them to talk about making some change, just to see that there's even right. a need at all that exists in their life for some kind of change.
0: Yeah, as a peer, we change SMART goals. Uh, We we kept the the S, the specific. We kept the M for measurable. We kept the A for attainable. Uh, But we took out the R. And we changed it from realistic to recovery because I don't know about you, but I've had so many people tell me that my goals weren't realistic and that I shouldn't do them. And I've accomplished them anyway. But I've seen a lot of people get their hopes shot down. By somebody, you know, I mean, here I'm talking to you and finally I have you invested in something because it's what you want to do. And then I'm like, yeah, no, that's not realistic. You can't do that. All of a sudden, somebody's losing the air out of their sales. I know what you mean.
1: (laughs) That's a good change.
0: I think so. So, yeah, um, we came up with it because I used to talk about smart uh, goals during the uh, certified peer specialist training. And I had one of our co-trainers, uh, one of my co-facilitators, uh, Mickey McDowell, that stepped up. And she, I know she wouldn't mind me talking about her, but she was like, no, because you can't tell somebody that that's not a realistic goal. And you're like, you are absolutely correct. Man, I've been doing this wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, because uh, there's uh, another guy that facilitates Tim, and he has an example of having somebody who was a felon that wanted to be a police officer. And everybody had always told him he couldn't do it. And Tim was like, hey, you know what? You can do anything that you set your mind to. So as they worked through the goal, really what they found out is that the guy really, really liked the uniform and the authority. So he's now a security guard. Hmm. So he doesn't have to carry a gun. But instead of shooting his goal down, he said, okay, so what do you like about this? Why do you want to? And as they went through the different things, they found another avenue he could use. That's really cool.
1: because. Yeah, the, I never even used the R anyway when I would do it because my whole thing was if you fall short, you're not failing, let's address the barriers. Right. Let's make it realistic, you know. Uh, so I would never tell some. I set a goal in recovery to lose 77 pounds because I weighed 277 right. pounds. And someone was like, no, you need to set it for 10 pounds. You, like, you're setting yourself up to fail. And I'm like, you don't understand how determined I am to do this. And I ended up losing about 90 pounds. I've gained a lot of that back. but
0: <laughs> Being a dad does that from what yeah, I hear. It really does. Sympathy
1: weight. Yeah, yeah. It, whether it's an excuse or not, I'm taking it. Right. So <laughs> uh, but, you know, and I, I've always thought about that. Like, how dare somebody tell you that you can't accomplish your goal? You know, like, have the biggest goal you want to have and let's right. talk about what you need to do to get closer to it. Even if it doesn't seem like it's likely to me i don't know how bad you want it you know
0: right man we've really segued so i'm going to jump back into <laughs> questions uh so in early recovery what was it that really helped you maintain your sobriety were there were there a couple things that you're like you know what those are the things that really helped me in the very beginning
1: i mean so
0: if we're talking like
1: philosophically i would say it was uh being teachable you know, um, willing to learn from the people around me, but also being willing to apply what I was being taught. You know, uh, I had, I went to treatment twice the first time. I didn't listen to anything. I just thought I need to dry out and I'll be fine. And then the second time it was like, if I, if I don't do what they tell me is going to help me stay sober, how can I expect to stay sober? It, would, it sounds crazy to think that people would keep going to treatment and never follow through with the stuff they're learning. And so uh, now if you want to get into like specific things that I did under Being Teachable, like they recommended I move into sober living. That's why I'm such a huge advocate for sober living. Uh, I did my 21 days in Bridgeway, and I lived in an Oxford house for seven months. Uh, I went and got a sponsor. I followed my sponsor suggestions I did what he told me to do. I built a fellowship of friends that I could count on, you know, at any time. Um, but it all, it all came down to being willing to follow the suggestions, uh, being teachable. So that'd be my answer to that.
0: Okay. Yeah. I remember, uh, I was in the middle of 90 and 90 and it was more like 150 and 90 because we're not wired to do anything halfway. Yeah. And, uh, I remember I was about three weeks into it, and uh, my sponsor was like, Hey, why don't we hit three meetings tomorrow? And I was like, yeah, Sure, that'd be awesome. So uh, we go to the first meeting, and after the meeting, we're drinking coffee, and I'm like, So what do you think? And he, he, he starts talking about the weather and, and sports. And then we went to another meeting, and after it, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm showing him how, how on top of everything I am at this meeting. And at the, after the second one, he uh, starts talking about his daughter. And I'm like, dude, what do you think? And he's like, we can talk about that after the third meeting. So we go to the third meeting. After the third meeting, I sit down, and I'm like, what do you think? And he's like, oh, my God, are you ever going to shut up in those meetings? You know, And I, 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 I've heard that a lot of people have had the same advice. You know, He's like, you got two ears, one mouth. He said, you need to take the cotton out of your ears, stick it in your mouth. He yeah. said, listen to the people that know what they're doing instead of walking in there thinking you know it three weeks in. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next my next task for the next week was to go to a, a meeting every day and say hi my name's david and i'm just here to listen and just listen instead of because i think you're right being teachable is is an amazing ability that not a lot of us have mm-hmm. you know especially uh we're used to being really good at stuff even if it's something bad <laughs> so we go in and we think we know everything because mm-hmm. by god i've got two weeks sober mm-hmm. so everybody needs to listen to me right yeah that's being teachable is huge i love that so what is the most important thing you have ever done for your recovery if you could just pick one thing and be like you know what this is the thing that put it over the top
1: man i honestly it goes back to the teachability thing it really does um it's oh And, but also just like asking questions, like, okay, you want me to do this. Why do you want me to do this? Right. I want to know why. I want to know the reason behind this stuff. And also doing case studies and relapse, you know, as a new person in recovery. Oh, I had five years sober and I went back out and I would go up to that person after the meeting. What happened? I don't want that to happen to me. Right. And they would always say, I just, like, one lady, I want to tell this story. This lady had 18 years sober, and she was just a, a glowing, amazing woman, always had really good stuff to say. And she looked around the meeting one day. She came in. she's like crying, and she's shaking. And she's like, I drank. And she just looked around the room, and she said, don't ever think that you are just the teacher. You always have to be the student. And she didn't say you can't be the teacher. She's saying that you still have to be teachable, right. No matter how long you've been around. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. Well, they ended up finding that woman uh, dead. She drank herself to death not long after that. And I really believe once you pick up, you start that reaction. You know, it's hard. We, I don't have an off switch personally. Right. So it makes sense to me. I, that's why I'm a big believer in treatment. I got to go somewhere and have the switch turned off for me. But uh, it's... It's being teachable. And I'll tell you what, there's times in my recovery where my ego is so out of control that I don't, I don't see anyone around as being a teacher to me. Right. And that's when I feel like it's most important to say, you better find whoever it is that you're willing to listen to and go listen to them. And sometimes it's not even a sponsor. It's like, what area of my life do I want to grow in? And I find a teacher who's willing to say, hey... You're struggling in relationships. I've been through this. Let me show you what I did. And I start tackling a new area of my life, and through just being teachable, I feel like it's taken my life to just you know. I started off with nothing. I started off homeless. I had I had 12 warrants out for my arrest. Uh, Hep C. Like my life was a living hell, and all I did was say, "Hey, tell me what to do. I'm tell me what to do to stay sober today." And follow the directions. And uh, I have a great life today. And it's right. like, ever, even when I was talking about losing weight, I found someone else on the program who had recently lost a lot of weight. What did you do? And they gave me instructions. And I followed it. And I duplicated their results. And I'm like, this is like the ultimate recipe for success in life. If someone has achieved something, all I have to do is ask them what they did. Right. And I can. there's a reasonable expectation that if I follow the directions, I could come close to at least duplicating what they've done. So I would say just that one thing, just trying to be as teachable as possible
0: and finding people that I'm willing to learn from. Teachability. Yeah, you you, you come upon an interesting uh, point there. Sometimes people feel like they can't change their sponsor or their mentor or whoever that person is in their life. They're like, well, you know, I... I I feel bad about doing it. And what I've always said is find somebody whose life you want in five years. And at the very beginning, man, almost everybody in the room is somebody whose life I want in five (laughs) years. But a couple years into it, I mean, you you may enter a new season of your life. Mm -hmm. And what I've found is sometimes we have teachers that are really happy where they're at they've kind of gotten complacent and when we first come in man that's the perfect person for us mm-hmm. but as we progress and our lives get better and better mm-hmm. we may surpass them and it may be necessary for us to find a new teacher mm-hmm. you know Yep,
1: yeah, i agree with that 100 percent. sometimes i'm jealous of guys who come in and are like i've had the same sponsor for 30 years i'm like that's really awesome you guys probably have an amazing relationship you know uh, but I I kind of get to a point where I'm like, everything's getting a little uh, stagnant and I need to change things up. New sponsor, new homebrew, right. you know. And so, you know, just find some new teachers. What where, what area am I lacking in? How can I, you know, uh,
0: change that and make some improvements there? Right, right. You know? So is there something that you do every day that helps you maintain your recovery? Uh
1: Working in recovery. Uh, But, yeah, like, I, everything, that's the thing, man, is uh, at seven months sober, I realized I hated working. And I, I remembered the quote, if you do what you love for work, you'll never have to work again in your life. And so I decided that what I loved most then was recovery. Like, oh, my God, my life is so much better. And so I made it my goal to work in recovery. And I got the job being a peer support specialist at Bridgeway. And and so, and even before that, it's like slowly everything in my life tied back to my recovery. So, like, my job's in recovery. My fiance's in recovery. I bought my car from a person in recovery. You know, like... Literally every single thing that I do, all my best friends, the events I go to, they're all tied into recovery. It's not like I, I hide from people who aren't in recovery, but it's just, I've built a solid foundation in my life where I'm right in the center of recovery and right. the things that I do. And then even helping other people get into recovery. Um, so if I had to say, you know, what's one thing I do every day, it's just be in recovery, you know.
0: Okay. So uh, what would they say? Uh, t- 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 making recovery an intentional thing is kind of what you're saying. I, yeah, I love yeah. that.
1: Yeah. and But at the same time, it's like, that being said, uh, I feel like it would be a disservice to say that I don't believe that God is the center of my life and my recovery. So keeping that relationship as my number one focus is... Right. Uh, definitely why I even want to stay in recovery.
0: You yeah. know? And I love recovery for this. It's not clean. Um, I tell people uh, whenever somebody talks about being clean, I, I always say, you know, I'm only clean for about 30 seconds after I get out of the shower. The rest of the day I'm in recovery. Because <laughs> to me, clean is just abstinent. I don't want people to just be abstinent. And recovery is about transforming your entire every aspect of your life. It's a holistic life change Mm -hmm. that will go on forever. I mean, I know some miserable people that just don't drink or drug anymore. Mm -hmm. But when I see somebody that's actively working a solid recovery program, man, I mean, that's where I see that joy, that hope. Mm -hmm. You know, those are the people that I love being around. So, what is it that keeps you? from going back to your old behaviors? Um, Well, I will say
1: this. You know, I am not a perfect person. There are days when I do, you know, take steps backward, you know, like mentally and thinking, and I I might start holding resentments. Um, But I would say, if anything, it's the proof in what I do and how beneficial it's been to my life. And so I'll, I'll start to see, like, oh, I'm kind of doing some old behavior here. I don't like how that feels. I right. don't like where my life's going. I, I feel like I'm doing a disservice to myself and my family. And I want to see what else, you know, working on myself can get me in my life. Like, what else can working a program of recovery, how much better can it get, you know? And so it's like every time that I am... Uh, trying to improve myself more, my life gets better, and it's like wanting to see what the next chapter looks like moving
0: forward. Okay. So, that's awesome. <laughs> so, uh, what's changed in your life since you stopped using? You know, I know we've kind of talked about it, yeah. but. So,
1: God. So, like I said, first day sober, March 12, 2012. It's a day that I celebrate. I'm so proud of that day, uh, but in reality, it was one of the worst days of my life. I didn't sleep the night before. I woke up puking up whatever pasta I ate at Bridgeway while I was in treatment. You know, uh, I I I left group to go take a test to see if I had Hep C, knowing that I didn't have it. I was just gonna get out of group. Right. Found out I had Hep C. <laughs> uh It was an emotional roller coaster all day, crying, not being able to sit still. Uh, Looking at my life the way it was, I'm like, it'll be at least 20 years before I ever am able to even get out of this hole that I've dug for myself. I don't have any friends left in my life. I have all these warrants. I feel like crap all the time. You know, where am I going to go live after this? Uh, That's where my life was, you know. And then I work a program of recovery and it's like, I mean, we're, we're sitting in a recovery community center that I helped find, you know, uh, with my fiance in the other room who loves me unconditionally. I have three beautiful children that I love more than anything. If you asked me what I wanted from life, even before I ever got sober, I would have told you, I just want my own family. And like, I have that. I have an amazing career. I have a family. I don't obsess over getting high or drunk anymore. That's not even a part of my life at all. It doesn't even go through my brain. It, it might be a fleeting thought like twice a year, you know, uh, and it's like a split second. It's like right. I laugh at it, like, where did that come from? That's, a, you know. Uh, right. That's how much my life has changed uh, through being in recovery.
0: You know, A night and day difference. Okay. And if you could travel back in time and talk to yourself the day before you used, what would you say to yourself? The first time? Yeah. (laughs) Like intentionally used. How about that? Because I know a lot of us, we might have used early, but it wasn't that intentional use. So what would
1: I have said to myself? Honestly, man, um, since I was 13... I would have honestly told myself, make sure you show up for the first day of football practice freshman year of high school. That's like... I don't regret anything that's happened in my life. The pain that I have went through, I had to go through. It was like necessary for me to get where I'm at today. Right? And I have no regrets about where I'm at today. I just wished I had played more football in high school. I loved playing football. That would have been the only thing that I would have wanted to change.
0: That's awesome. I talk about that a lot with people. I say... I don't have any regrets. Uh, no matter what happened to me, what was done to me by other people, no matter what choices I made and the consequences of those choices, if you like who you are today, man, why would you go back and change anything? Because everything had to happen just the way it did mm-hmm. for you to be where you're at. I mean, it, yeah. you might not have your fiance or kids mm-hmm. if one thing would have changed. Right. You I know? don't...
1: I wouldn't want to relive it at all. It was extremely painful, but I don't. The pain made me who I am today, and and it's crazy to think that I love the person that I am today. Day one sober, I would have probably told you something totally
0: different. So, thanks a lot for your time, Tim. This is the end of ten questions. Uh, don't forget, we do a live stream every Sunday at nine thirty p.m. Central Standard Time that you can watch either through better life and recovery or uh david stoker if you follow me or you're one of my friends if you are a special contributor uh we will have an addition to this called another 10 questions with tim so thanks a lot and i look forward to talking to you next time in closing i just want to thank you for listening to the podcast Please join us every week for new episodes. If you want to connect with us further, if you have any questions, topics you'd like to hear in the future, or maybe you would like to be on the podcast sometime, you can connect with us at betterlifeandrecovery.com. Uh, there's a Better Life and Recovery page on Facebook, or you can uh, we're on Twitter, uh, BLIR underscore NPO. Also, this podcast is part of the Studio DNA Podcast Network. You can find out more about the network at studiodna.media. Thanks a lot. Y'all have a great week.